You know, this past week I was pondering my college years, and I realized that some of the most memorable uh, and significant moments actually happened when I was serving tables at the Holiday Inn in Dunmore, like before they, they renovated it. And on one occasion, I was serving tables on New Year's Eve, and we got really, really busy that night, and, and my coworkers were getting, uh, getting a little overwhelmed, and I was feeling pretty good, and so I told my manager, uh, hey, listen, just keep giving me tables. Like, I, I don't mind. Just keep, keep them coming. And, and the manager did, and, and I don't remember uh, all, however many people I ended up serving that night, but I do remember that I walked away with almost $400 in tips for like six hours of work. It was so easy. It was like a limited menu. Like it was just, you could only order what's off the sheet. And I was just living the dream. But it all happened because I chose to serve tables. But much more important than this moment was the moment when I met my wife, Carrie. You see, my shift was about to begin and I was vacuuming the floor to get ready for the day. And all of a sudden, an angel walked into the room. (laughs) And it was kind of like time stopped. Why do birds suddenly appear. And so she's coming, and I, I get that vacuum, and I puff out my chest, and I'm vacuuming like a man, you know? <laughs> and there's probably drool coming out of my face, and, and even though it took longer than I desired, eventually I wooed Carrie over with my dashing good looks and charm. She said, I do. But again, it all happened because I chose to serve. But probably the most significant thing that happened to me as a waiter, believe it or not, was my discipleship in the Lord. You see, uh, I was newly saved at the time when I, when I first got the job at the Holiday Inn, and God was gracious to allow me to work with a fairly large group of believers who actually were my age. And so we became really good friends both in and outside of the workplace, and I was able to watch how they lived life, and I attended Bible studies with them and the whole nine yards, and, and I was able to grow in my walk with Jesus just by working at the Holiday Inn. And it all happened because I chose to serve tables. You see, there's a theme going on here. You know what it is? Good things happen to those who choose to serve. Not tables, just serve in general, right? Um, and, and, and the very same thing, church, can be said when we willingly and lovingly choose to serve one another uh, within the church setting. And that's really what today's message Uh, is all about. This morning we're kicking off our series uh, in the second half of the Gospel of John. And today we're going to look at a passage uh, that displays one of the most profound acts of service in all of Scripture. And in doing so, we're going to learn how to be the types of servants that the Lord calls us to be, and then the glory that God receives as a result. And so today's truth to remember, what I want you to kind of take away from today's message is this. Serving one another in love is our foremost witness to the world. Serving one another in love is our foremost witness to the world. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It's page 900 in the Pew Bible. And as you're turning there, I'm just going to ask God's blessing on our time in his word. Lord Jesus, this morning have the privilege of being able to open up your word and, and look at uh, a wonderful passage of scripture. And God, it's my desire that, um, that my confidence be found in you as I, as I bring your word. Uh, Father, I pray that you would teach us and, and speak to us through your word this morning. And, and Lord Jesus, that I uh, in my flesh would get out of the way uh, of, of what your word teaches us, and God, you would encourage us and convict us and train us and, 
and do what it is that you do uh, as we open up your word. Lord, help us to be attentive and, and focused on what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today's passage marks a major shift in John's narrative. In fact, the next five chapters of John's gospel will slow down significantly to focus on the last 24 hours of Jesus' life and what he said uh, to his disciples on the night before his death. Now this morning we have a lot of ground to cover, 35 verses, so I'm not going to, to work through every little detail of every little verse. However, what I am going to do is focus on the main points of the Lord's teaching. A lot of times when you see all this teaching, uh, it could be narrowed down into, into really a main idea. And in this case, it's giving a snapshot, a snapshot of what servanthood looks like. And so found within today's passage are four important snapshots concerning this matter. So let's look at the first, which is the example of servanthood. The example of servanthood, uh, verses 1 through 5. Let's read. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You see, having walked the dirty streets of Jerusalem wearing nothing but sandals, the disciples' feet would have been filled with dirt and manure, because that's just the way it was back in the day. And in ancient Jewish culture, it was customary for a household servant to wash the feet of guests, especially before eating a meal, because ain't nobody want to eat a meal when you've got poop on your feet, right? That's just gross. In fact, it was offensive to eat with dirty feet, and in this case, there was no servant present. And so, at this point, you would think that one of the disciples might have looked around and said, hmm, I wonder, maybe I should step up to the plate and help out. And the reason why I say you would think that is because Jesus taught them in Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you shall be a servant. But apparently, this teaching of Jesus fell on deaf ears. In fact, in the other gospel accounts, it reveals that right before this occurrence, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest and who would be the greatest and most, hold the most prominent position in heaven. Hardly the attitude of someone humble enough to wash someone else's feet. On the contrary, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a what? Servants. And so here, in a stunning display of humility, Jesus, their master, and, and try to put yourself in, in the story. You know, try to put yourself there. You know, here's Jesus. It's their master, their teacher, their rabbi, the one that's been guiding them and leading them and performing all these miracles and teaching them and, and for the last three years. The one that they held in such high regard, he stoops down. He rose from supper, stooped down, and began doing the lowly work of a servant. I mean, I try to, I try to understand, like, what, what would this look like today? And, and, and I don't really know, but I think of, like, just imagine, like, like, like Jesus is over your house. 
and, and, and you're hosting this wonderful meal, and, and he's your savior, and he's your Lord, and you realize you forgot to clean the bathroom before he came, right? Or somebody was sick in the house, and, and, and all of a sudden you find, rather than you do it, you find him, like, scrubbing, like, the toilet in the bathroom. Like, like maybe that's not the best, but that's what I could think of, and it's just like, wow, like, the lowly work of a servant. In church, his humble example reminds us that no act of service, no matter how low it may be, is below a follower of Jesus. Elizabeth Elliot said it best. She said, does God ask us to do what's beneath us? This question will never trouble us again if we consider the Lord of heaven taking a towel and washing feet. Now, the ensuing conversation between Jesus and Peter is quite fascinating. To his credit, the thought of the Lord washing his feet was appalling to Peter, and at first, he didn't didn't want anything of it. But Jesus insisted that this must take place, and in a moment, we'll learn why. Let's look at verses 6 through 11. It says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And then Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. At the end of a revival service, an evangelist invited people to come forward if they wanted someone to pray for them. And so about midway through the line of people stood an imposing, intimidating man. When the minister asked about his prayer request, a burly guy said, Reverend, I need you to pray for my hearing. And the evangelist quickly placed his hands over the man's ears and prayed fervently for restored hearing. And so when the minister finally finished praying, he looked at the man squarely in the eyes. And he shouted above the choir singing. He said, how's your hearing now? And the man loudly replied, I don't know yet, preacher. My hearing isn't until next Wednesday at the courthouse. (laughs) Church, just like the preacher, when it comes to truth, sometimes we can misunderstand it. And that's what's happening here. You see, Peter was confused over the actions of Jesus and what they implied. So Jesus took advantage of this situation to teach him and, and us a very important spiritual truth. In fact, a vital spiritual truth. In fact, forget the one thing this morning. If you remember this spiritual truth, you'll be doing okay. Listen. If you're not washed by Jesus, then you cannot have fellowship with Jesus. If you're not washed by Jesus, then you cannot have fellowship with him. And this is true both for salvation and discipleship. In other words, and your growth as a believer. And here Jesus makes that distinction when he said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. So what's going on here? Well, you see, Peter, and and, and this reveals Peter's heart, he didn't want to lose his share in Jesus. He didn't want to lose his share in Jesus. And so he essentially said, well, in that case, don't just wash my feet. Hose me down. I don't want to lose you. 
But Jesus assured him that, listen, you don't need a full cleansing because you're already bathed, so to speak. You see, in other words, positionally, Peter was saved. He didn't need to worry about losing that connection to Jesus because he was saved. And, and, and the implications of this truth should really bring you and I some great encouragement. Because a lot of times people struggle with their salvation. They struggle whether or not I'm saved based upon performance. But the reality is this. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You see, salvation is a one and done deal. It's permanent. The moment when you place your faith in Jesus, you are permanently washed by his blood. There's nothing that you need to do to remain saved, and there's nothing that you can do to lose your salvation. Once you're saved, you're saved. You're bathed. However, and this is what Jesus is getting at in this passage, once you're saved, you need to maintain fellowship with Jesus in terms of your relationship with him. And this was the spiritual truth that Jesus was illustrating when he said the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. One commentator notes it, puts it this way. If you're already saved, you don't need to be resaved. You just need to address the dirty areas of your life so that you can stay clean. And the way that we as believers address the dirty areas of our lives and stay clean is by confession and repentance. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, all of Christ's disciples were washed clean except for one, Judas, the betrayer. And we're going to get to him in a few minutes. But I want you to notice how Jesus closes out this little portion of his spiritual teaching. He closes it by calling his disciples to follow his practical example of service. So he does this practical example of service, but he uses this practical example to teach a deep spiritual truth, and then he comes back and he calls his disciples to follow the practical thing he did as well. Look at verses 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. When it comes to service, Dr. Charles Stanley said this, if you and I are to make an impact upon others that we should, if we are to fulfill God's purposes and plans for our life, and if we are to reap the maximum blessings that God has prepared for us, we too must develop the spirit of a servant, and our actions must be the actions of a servant. A servant who realizes that Jesus is not only our Savior, but he's the master of our life. Any unwillingness or resistance to serve others in his name is an act of rebellion. It's pretty good. And it leads us to the second snapshot of servanthood that we find in today's passage. A snapshot that's very sobering, but nevertheless very real and very prevalent, uh, unfortunately, in the church today. And it's this, the rebellion toward servanthood. The rebellion. Let's look at verses 18 through 30. I'm not speaking to all of you 
I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives, the one, receives me receives the one who sent me. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Interesting, right? God, who's going to do it? The one who, I, who, I dip the, who dips the bread. Dips the bread, gives the bread. Lord, who's going to do it? You, you see what I'm saying here? Like, why did they not pick up on that? They didn't understand. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was, was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that we should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. You know, a few years ago, Carrie and I, along with my parents, uh, went to get our living wills completed. Which, by the way, if you don't have a living will, get one done. I know you don't want to think about your own death, but you're going to save your family a lot of additional heartache by having a living will. That's just my little plug for that. But anyway, at one point, the lawyer uh, met privately with my parents uh, to discuss who would be the executor of the will and uh, the power of attorney. Uh, because both of those roles carry lots of power and responsibility. The lawyer said to my parents, you want to be sure that you're not letting a fox into the hen house. In other words, you want to make sure that whoever holds these positions aren't going to be problem causers and cause dissension within the family. Well, church, in the same way as Christians, you and I have a tremendous responsibility. One being not to cause problems within the family. Judas reminds us that many times opposition to Christ's work comes from the inside. In fact, most, if not all, of church dissension and disunity can be traced back to a person or person's decision to rebel against God's commands in the church. Galatians 5.9 says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You see, as believers, we need to be careful that we're not the source of problems within a church. We must be careful that we're not the ones that are rebelling against God's work, whether it be gossip or speaking negatively about the pastors or church leadership, airing your grievances to everyone under the sun except for the person that you're actually grieved with. You see, all those things contribute to hurting the servanthood, the servant attitude, and the unity of a church. This is why spiritually washing our feet on a regular basis is so important. Because if we remain in, in right fellowship with Jesus, then we're less likely to become the leaven that impacts the whole Lump. If you're with me, say, I'm with you. We see, in this case, Judas was the leaven. He was about to betray Jesus Christ, setting the stage for his arrest, his unfair trial, and crucifixion. And his decision to rebel would greatly impact the whole group. However, as we already know, 
And as the disciples would soon learn, God was going to use Judas' act of rebellion to accomplish his divine plan for salvation. Isn't that amazing how God just uses all the bad stuff for good? However, and this is a really big however, so stay with me. Just because God can work through our acts of rebellion does not mean that God wants you to rebel. Are you with me? Say, I'm with you. It's not God's will for you or I to play the role of leaven in a church body. And by the way, if that's you, you want to cause little problems around here? And by the way, I'm not aware of any problems. This is just the passage I'm preaching on this morning, okay? But we're, you know, problems happen, right? But if that's you, if you want to be that problem causer, if you want to be the little leaven, you want to rebel a little bit, cause some problems around the church, can I just encourage you to do something? Take a cue from Judas! It's not going to work out in your favor. It's going to work out in your personal destruction. You just don't do it. In fact, you'd be better off embracing the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of what? Peace. Now, more can be said about Judas. But I'll just say this. As believers, we must be careful that we're following Jesus' example and not openly rebelling against it. And as we're going to see in the next few verses, Jesus is going to lay out even more specifically the type of example that we're called to follow in relation to serving one another. And this leads us to the third snapshot of servanthood, the command for servanthood. The command. Look at verses 31 to 34. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. You see, church, the command to love one another isn't new, but the command to love one another like Jesus, that's revolutionary. Dr. Tony Evans describes this type of love like this. Biblical love is a decision to compassionately, responsibly, and righteously pursue the well-being of another person. It's not the same as liking someone. To like someone or something is to express a feeling. By contrast, loving someone may or may not have feelings connected to it. Love is a decision to seek another's best regardless of your feelings. And I think this is really important to remember when it comes to a church family. Because we're exactly that, a family. And just like every family, there's going to be some drama in these pews, right? A little bit of drama in the pews. There's always going to be someone who rubs you the wrong way. There's always going to be that crazy uncle that you don't want to be around. But if you succumb to these negative feelings it will impact your ability to love those people. And it will hurt the overall well-being of the church. For me, I found the best way to love those who you may not feel like loving is first to pray for them, and the second is to remember who you're ultimately doing it for. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartedly as for the Lord and not for men 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Church, if Jesus managed to love those who beat him and insulted him, spit on him and flogged him and humiliated him and hung him on a cross, we could certainly find a way to love those who get under our skin. And yeah, sometimes those people who get under, get under our skin the most are the ones that are sitting right next to us in the pew or sitting in a pew behind us or, or in, front, in front of us, right? But guess what? Get over it. Because here's the reality. We're family, and we've got to figure out a way to get along here because we're going to be spending all of eternity with one another, right? So we might as well figure out how to do this thing now. Again, not picking on anybody. I'm not aware of any issues. I'm assuming there probably is because we're a big old church family and there's always issues, right, with family. But I'm just saying these are principles to remember if issues do arise. Plus the reality is this. If we're holding grudges against one another in the church, then we're not walking in right fellowship with God. Right? I mean, you can't justify disliking someone to the point of not even wanting to love them or care for them if you're a Christian. Because if, if you try to justify that, then you're not walking in fellowship with the Lord. And friends, we cannot afford to be at odds with one another. We can't afford that. Why? Because there's way too much at stake. Way too much at stake. And this leads us to the last snapshot of servanthood, the result of servanthood. What's at stake? Look at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All people will know. Notice that people are not going to recognize us as Christ's disciples by how much head knowledge we have or how many Bible studies we attend. Or how many classes we lead. However, all people will know that we are Christians by our what? By our love. Paul wrote about this in his letter to Corinth. And I love how the NLT puts it. 1 Corinthians 8.1 But while knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. How many of you guys want to have a strong church? Say amen. Knowledge makes us feel good. Love strengthens the church. Now, I don't want you to, don't get me wrong, knowledge of God's word is vital. Can't, you don't even know how to love unless you, you see how Jesus loved, right? And, and, and what God's word teaches about it. Knowledge of God's word is vital, but love is more vital than knowledge. Knowledge can make us look good, feel good, but could also cause us to develop this arrogant, know-it-all attitude. In fact, knowledge, if not accompanied by love, does more to undermine the gospel than anything else. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3 says, If I speak in tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You know, we spend countless hours, and they're not wasted, but we spend countless hours trying to come up with, like, new and intelligent arguments to defend Christianity as true and viable. And while these apologetics have their place, 
I can't help but wonder what would happen if we just got this one apologetic right. Love. Love. Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian apologist, said that love is the final apologetic. It is the defense for which there is no defense. And again, look at the results that follow when we love one another and live in unity with one another. In praying specifically for the church, I love this passage. I, I just, I love this. When Jesus was praying specifically for you and I, for his people, in John 17, 20 to 21, he said this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's, so he's asking for people that are, that are not believers yet. And he's praying for the church here in 21, that they, the church, may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. Why? Read it with me. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Would you agree there's something about the way we do life together that's, e that's evangelistic? That's a witness to the world? More so than any arguments or debates or, 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 or fancy little things that we can come up with, people walk into a church and they see God's people loving each other and serving each other. That is the best witness we got going for us. Because who wants to hear about Jesus from somebody that's a cranky person? You know what I'm saying? You've all met them, right? Oh, I'm a, I, I witness for the Lord all the time. I'm, oh, I pass out tracks like they're going out of style. But like they're the crankiest people in the United States of America. You know what I'm saying? It's like, if that's what you got, keep the track, my friend. I don't want it. But man, when you see somebody who's loving and who's just real and raw and just like, I don't know, actually looks like Jesus, wow, that does something to your heart, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's the same reason why I've said it before, and I'll say it again from the pulpit, and I'm preaching to myself because I have to, I have to do this. I, it's work for me. Like, when you say hi to somebody in the supermarket, changes their day, doesn't it? Because everybody's so cranky, right? And, and so, but, but, but when you go out of your way to, to show love, it, it just changes the course of somebody's day. And, and man, I, th I think the way we love one another could change the course of someone's eternity. And I just can't help but wonder how many people have been turned off to Christ due to the unloving actions of the church. And I'm not even talking about the unloving actions of the church that happen, like, outside of the church. I'm just talking about, like, you go to a church and you just don't feel loved. Or you look at these people and you're like, like, what? I don't understand why they're coming. Like, this is it? I get more love at a bar than I do at a church. You know, I believe it was Gandhi who said, I'd be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. That's, that's hard, isn't it? But at the same time, I can't help but wonder how many people we'd win to Christ if we just displayed love to one another that Jesus called us to display. I mean, just a simple 36-year-old guy, but I suspect that if we... If we live the way Jesus wanted us to live with one another, I suspect, and I could be wrong, but I think God's word is pretty clear. I think we're going to see some fruit from that. I think we'll see people come into faith in Jesus because of our testimony. So let me just ask, how many of you want to love more like Jesus so we could see more people come to Jesus, say, oh, yeah. Really? You know, if we were in the South... 
That would have felt a little better. I'll give it a pass, but we're going to try it again. How many of you guys want to love more like Jesus? I didn't even finish what I was going to say, guys. See, see, this is the problem with you North people, all right? Let me try it one more time. I, I, will, I will give you the cue, all right, and then just go nuts, all right? How many of you people want to love more like Jesus so we can see more people come to faith in Jesus say, ah, yeah? Ah, See, it doesn't matter because you didn't do it the first time. So <laughs> just having fun with you now. Church, this leads us back to today's truth to remember. Serving one another in love is our foremost witness to the world. More and more, I, I look at scripture. I, I'm just convinced of this. I, again, I, I, can't, I can't get past Jesus' prayer for you and I in John 17. And... and, and which, which, which means there's so much more weight. It's, it's not just, hey guys, let's just love each other because God's word says to love one another. You know, it's not, there's so much weight that's carried behind this, guys. We are a family and we need to take care of each other as a family and meet needs and serve each other and, and maybe wash each other's feet. I don't know about that, but you know, pretty close to it, right? But we have to, we have to own this because there's much more at stake than just you and I. So that the world may know world may know that we are Christ's disciples. And as I mentioned earlier, good things happen when we willingly and lovingly choose to serve. $400 in tips, met my wife, got discipled. Well, in this case, none of that really applies. But, but I believe that we're going to make a difference in our world if people see us loving each other. And so this morning, we're going to close by receiving the Lord's Supper together. And I can't think of a better time for a heart washing than right now. In fact, as believers, we're commanded, we're commanded to be clean before God before we receive the Lord's Supper. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So friends, as you examine your own heart this morning, and as I examine mine, let's ask the Lord to reveal any areas in our lives that may be hurting the well-being of the church and its testimony. Perhaps it's gossip. Perhaps it's a broken relationship in this room that needs to be mended. Perhaps it's some other sin altogether. Friends, whatever it may be, might I encourage you to repent of it and restore your fellowship with the Lord. And in doing so, take the first step in being a blessing to the church and the witness to the world that, that you're called to be, that I'm called to be.